And I'm going to start by asking David one or two things about biblical material on hope, um, which will then launch us into the discussion about the very important medieval scholastic discussion of hope. Um, anyone who's ever read the Psalms will know that the rhythm in the Psalms is often between despair, paranoia, and then hope. There's only one Psalm that ends on an absolute downbeat, which is Psalm 88. And even then, Psalm 89 upswings us. Um, but it's very characteristic in the Psalms um, to move, as in Psalm 62, from um, how long will you assail a person? Will you batter your victim, all of you, as you would a leaning wall, a tottering fence? And then the psalmist goes back, for God alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is from him. So this kind of rhythm um, is absolutely characteristic of the psalmic mode. Um, and then, David, there are other moments in the Old Testament where you have real moments of despair in, in the stories of the Old Testament. Can you? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, is this audible? Mm. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank, and thank you, Sarah, for having me. Uh, I entirely agree. Um, the, the Old Testament is uh, just such a, a standout in terms of hope, and it's a kind of resilient, tenacious hope. You even think at the very beginning in terms of the story of the expulsion and exile from Eden, and you often have so many great Renaissance paintings of the flaming sword and Adam and Eve weeping and being sent out. So it begins in a mode of do we choose hope or do we despair? And that really carries on. And you see that uh, very strongly crystallizing, I think, in the story of Abraham, who's to be the father of the nations, but he's too old to have a child, and then he's supposed to sacrifice him. And so, as Paul says, he hopes against hope. And you see it in the story of Job, of course, uh, who is really tempted to despair like no one else. And yet he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. He still perseveres. And as you mentioned with the, the, the Psalms, where God is always or very frequently pictured in hope-specific metaphors, uh, a rock to, to defend you, a fortress uh, to take refuge in, an eagle who will lift you up, and so forth. So I think it's a very prominent, and then at the very end of the Old Testament, you have these messianic hopes. Yes, which we've been reflecting on in, in, in Advent. Um, there's also that wonderful text uh, in Lamentations, chapter 3, that we use in Holy Week, um, where I think there is the sort of deepest exploration of despair. Um, the prophet puts his cheek in the dust. Mm. Um, and then, new every morning is the love. The turn comes at the end of the chapter. It's just, if you don't know that text, it's, it's just a wonderful one. And Or then, in the history, there's Elijah in the desert who goes mm. away in a grump up the mountain, yes. puts his head between his legs and wants to die, yeah. and thinks his entire undertaking has come to nothing. Um, so, what's new in the New Testament, given that, <laughs> given that this rhythm is already well established in the Hebrew Scriptures? Uh, I think initially there's that uh, hyper-intensified messianic hope and expectation which the people have for a Messiah. And of course, the, the Twelve and the disciples invest all those hopes in the person of Christ. Uh, but then on the cross, which they haven't understood, it's quite clear at that point, they don't understand how the cross fits into this, uh, it, it appears to be this total defeat. Uh, they flee away, there's this kind of darkness, and so in a sense, I think Golgotha could have been the, the great place of despair where all your hopes go to die. Uh, 
Uh, but instead you have this glorious resurrection on the third day, and it becomes this kind of ultimate vindication of, of hope, this sense that no matter how bad history looks, or even if you appear to be on the winning side, nothing can prevent the coming of God's kingdom and our share in the same. And, and so I think it initially begins with this kind of exultant jubilation, mm-hmm. but then later in the New Testament you see this is... Uh, there are some more cautionary points coming in about waiting and expectation and so on, yeah. Because the end doesn't come immediately. Yeah, uh, the second coming doesn't appear. So then you have the period of the Christian tradition, in effect, where this rhythm of despair and persecution yeah. and calamity crowd back. Um, we, David and I thought we would particularly like to look at a passage in Paul, in Romans 5, 5.5, 5, which is... I think particularly teasing, we would like to ask you what you think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a passage that I've often worried over. Let me just remind you, this is, this is Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing, now listen to the, listen, listen to the, um, the order here, we, we boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That's really interesting. We go from suffering to endurance, cuponone, remaining under, to character, document. And then from there to hope. I've always wondered, how do you get from document to elpis? How do you get from, from character to hope? Yeah. Tell me. Tell us. Um, <laughs> this is an interesting text because even well-known biblical scholars puzzle over it because Romans 5 begins with this rejoicing and justification through Christ. Um, but then suddenly you've got this mention of your own character and how does that figure into it? And, and um, one, one of the avenues into this I find promising is the idea that, that although suffering in itself is viewed as bad, mm-hmm. it's not a good, you don't want to allot people suffering, uh, it can be an occasion of good precisely in the sense of character mm-hmm. uh, and particularly of hope because one of the things suffering does is it disempowers you. Mm-hmm. It makes you realize that you don't have the resources on your own, you don't have the power to face a difficult situation. And so it becomes an opportunity to rely more upon God's grace, Mm -hmm. upon God as, in effect, your friend in need, like Mm -hmm. in the Psalms. Uh, And so in in kind of traditional, you know, medieval Latin commentaries, you would see this as a way of um, teaching us to rely more on God and also a kind of purification of your desires. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes in suffering, things are being taken away from you. And maybe you invested too much stock in them. Um, and so it becomes a way of reorienting your priorities. But mm. what, what do you think, Sam? Well, any, any comments on this? Is this a passage you've also puzzled over? And what is the definition of character? What do we mean by that? Mm. 
Yeah. Mm. David's a good one here because he's a virtue theorist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a particular kind of ethicist. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, it, it, on the whole, I interpret character in Paul to mean, because he often has lists of virtues, you know, mm. say, put on this, you know, hope is your helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. And so you have these images of the virtues as a kind of armor. Mm. Uh, and on the whole, I take character to be a description of the kind of total sum, being mm. well-equipped for mm -hmm. what you require in your life as a disciple. So the end of Ephesians, putting on the whole armor of God, if you remember, yeah. Yeah. the breastplate and the sword. But it's through the development of, as it were, coping with suffering in hope that this character develops. Um, and there's an interesting, um, the, the, even the language of Romans 5 is a little bit like um, in Corinthians where Paul says, I boast in my weakness. Mm -hmm. um, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I see the hope arising in part from, from this, mm -hmm. from, from the lines. So we already see that hope absolutely isn't optimism, mm -hmm. right? I think this is tremendously important. Yep. I think in our contemporary culture, that distinction is often not made. Yeah. Yes, we can. I like to think, uh, hi everybody, I'm Nika. Um, <laughs> I like to think of this passage as being one that uh, was meant to be memorized. Mm -hmm. And when we speak of hope at the end, I think really what it is, is hope for others who are currently suffering. Mm -hmm. That that person who got through it and then developed their wonderful character, mm -hmm. you know, that the hope is now for the new person to look onto them. So it's really a blessing when we've gone through some sort of suffering so we yeah. can help others. Mm -hmm. Note that at the end of the passage, this is the passage, by the way, that Augustine uh, reflects on at great length in his great text on the Trinity, that all this is in virtue of the fact that God's love has been poured out by a gift through the Holy Spirit and is drawing us into the life of divinity. Um, and that, of course, is in virtue of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So it's like a sort of mini encapsulation of the entire gospel. Dominic, were you waving or just scratching your head? <laughs> I've struggled to reconcile hope as a gift and then what you just read from Romans mm. as being produced, if you will, from character. Mm. Like you're saying that character, in a sense, is the sum of, of other gifts. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, and so that's how you reconcile all of that. Right. This is a famously complicated topic, and there are Pelagian worries here yes. too, right? Uh, you may have to say who Pelagius was. Uh, how many people know Pelagius? <laughs> Just explain. The, the British monk, uh, <laughs> it, it is thought. Um, who, who believed in effect that grace meant teaching. Uh, this is just to cut a long story short, and that uh, our salvation was largely down to our own efforts to become virtuous and, and worthy of God and so forth. Um, now, the, the kind of way I get at this is through the thought of Thomas Aquinas, because they reflected deeply on these texts. And he, he takes up a lot of the themes of St. Augustine and, and, and Cyprian even before him. And the idea is that it's a, a kind of both-and idea of God working through us and us working as well. So they use the word, uh, the term gratia cooperans, cooperating grace, a little bit like in a dance, both partners are performing, but they're relying upon each other. And the idea is that God takes the initiative for our, our good actions, but that we have to acquiesce and also exert ourselves in order to complete these actions. So hope is seen is flowing from grace, but also is evolving our own action, or else it wouldn't, it would just bypass us. Uh, it, it wouldn't if be we something we actually did, yeah. 
Of course, it's actually in another passage in Paul that um, we get the triad of um, faith, hope, and love. And I think we want to look at this for a moment before we bounce into the development of the later reflection on hope as a, as a virtue. So this is the, the famous 1 Corinthians 13, which you will all know. Um, um, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. So clearly, um, faith and hope are subordinated to, to love. Um, but it's quite interesting that Paul chooses these three, isn't it? Extremely. Um, <laughs> and he's so, chosen some different ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, traditionally in theology, this question was called the order of generation. Mm. Why faith, then hope, and then love? Mm. Is the order fortuitous or meaningful? Uh, and so Augustine begins the, the line of reflection that in effect says the sequence is deeply meaningful uh, because in order to have a relationship with someone, you need to believe in effect they exist and are there. So mm. faith comes first. And once you have faith in God, uh, he says, it kindles hope in his promises because you have a sense of a God who, unlike, say, a, a, a Greek God, truly loves you, uh, made you for the purpose of love and beatitude, and you can hope in God's promises. Some, a sense of uh, beatitude awaits me, and that this in turn kindles charity. There's a sense that God is so lovable uh, for his own sake that it... it, it elicits a, a response of love in return. So there's this idea that faith begins and then hope and then charity, and but that charity gives life to them all. I love the image in uh, Dante's Purgatorio where you've got, uh, they're, they're dressed as the three graces from Greek mythology. You've got charity in red, uh, faith in green, sorry, hope in green and faith in white. And faith leads the dance, but charity sings the song. <laughs> um. So, David, once we get outside the New Testament, of course, the Christian world meets uh, pagan philosophy and reflection on pagan virtues. And um, where did hope feature in pagan thought, in pagan ethics? This is the amazing thing, mm. is that it, it doesn't really exist as a virtue. So, of course, uh, Greco-Roman antiquity had very canonical lists of virtues, like the cardinal virtues. Mm -hmm. Um, but hope wasn't considered to be a kind of virtue. In fact, you could look at Greek tragedy mm. almost as a way of disillusioning you mm. From, mm. from hope mm. uh, and, and viewing hope as a kind of illusion or moonshine. Uh, so there are, there are virtues like courage, for instance, mm -hmm. aren't there? The sort of Justice, um, yes. prudence, yeah, that kind. But not hope as such. And so there's something very specific about the relationship between hope and the... First of all, the Old Testament view of God's eternal faithfulness, and then secondly, specifically Christianly, the importance of the resurrection as the sign of Christ, as the fundamental means of hope for humanity. Right? Those are the two kind of linchpins for hope. Yes. Would that be why Dante characterized limbo, the virtuous pagans in limbo, as not suffering but being without hope? Yeah, exactly. Very, very in this good. alone yeah. we suffer, cut off from hope we live on in desire. That's mm. what they say. Right. Mm. The virtuous pagans, yeah. yeah. So we've discovered that hope is a very distinctively Christian notion um, connected to the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the invitation into the life of God. But you could say that it takes some centuries for this 
for this theme to become filled out more substantially, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so if we could jump now to the scholastic discussion, specifically that of Thomas Aquinas, hope at this, become, at this point has become a theological virtue, right? Yeah. One of three. Can you, can you start to expound this for right, us? Right, right. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Mm. The, uh, so theological virtues comes from the word God, theos in Greek. And so faith, hope, and charity are seen as the three theological virtues because they concern God directly and all other things with relationship to God. Uh, and in the reflection, faith and charity tended to dominate the discussion. In mm -hmm. fact, you often see in liturgical prayers or mm -hmm. theological texts, faith and charity and hope is kind of the junior partner or <laughs> forgotten little sister. Um, but of course, it was believed to be very important but there wasn't a lot of reflection on it. And so Peter Lombard wrote a book called The Sentences, and this was the standard theological textbook in the Middle Ages. It was a kind of summary of, of Augustine and other church fathers. And he defined hope vaguely as a kind of expectation. And Aquinas, who I, I study quite a bit, um, he was dissatisfied with this. He thought that was too vague. So he became the first person in history to write a treatise on hope as a passion initially, as an emotion. So he describes hope as it always concerns a future good, arduous but possible to attain. So it isn't at all optimism. Mm. Um, there is a sense of something challenging here. Uh, and in terms of theological hope, he describes it as a virtue, so a kind of firm, resilient disposition rather than just a passing mood or attitude of optimism, something you know, you can see in scriptural language of hope as a helmet or an anchor. So you can exercise the virtue of hope even when you're feeling dreadful. Exactly. And this but is how in do a you sense do that exactly? Key. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so everyone up to that point in, in the Latin West thought of hope as a kind of desire for God. Mm. So the opposite of idolatry. Mm -hmm. um, but Aquinas said, no, its object is twofold. It's not just desiring God as your beatitude or ultimate end. It's also leaning or relying upon God as your source of strength, mm. or his Latin term is auxilium, mm. which is the term the Romans used for the heavy cavalry that would come in and save you. So it's very much like the psalm imagery. Yeah. Um, and so it becomes very much about a kind of personal reliance, trust, leaning upon God through trial, through prayer and sacrament to give you the grace to keep you going. So when you don't feel like it at all, how do you activate or reactivate this response to God's grace? Is it a matter of the intellect or the will? So it's um, the, 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 the kind of agreed upon version of this is it's very much a prayerful process mm. of uh, asking God for help in effect as your friend in need mm. and then trusting that that help will be provided even if it comes in ways you can't imagine. Mm. And then proceeding on the assumption that God will be there providing you with sufficient mm -hmm. grace. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the, the form that hope takes is not necessarily what spiritual writers call sensible consolation, mm -hmm. a sort of emotional solace. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that, mm -hmm. but it's more a sense of possibility, of encouragement, a sense of bracing the will, mm -hmm. uh, very much like Paul saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think this is a disposition that we don't teach enough in the church. Would you agree? Very much mm. so, yeah. Uh, One of the interesting things is that if you look back sort of through the 20th century and indeed before, you see that there have been periods when there have been a cluster of books about hope and then none at all and then another cluster. Um, and uh, 
it's almost like we've, we have to remember what this wisdom is. I mean, David's book has actually started a little eddy of new books on hope. Um, um, in fact, there's another one coming out in February by, by a friend of mine in England, Frankie Ward, um, and one by Dominic Doyle and one by David. Um, but uh, in the 60s, uh, the, the German Protestant theologian Jürgen Moltmann wrote on hope, but that was in a very different context, wasn't it? It was post-war <clears throat> Marxist <clears throat> pessimism, materialism, um, and Say a bit about that. that. That's mm. right. So mm. he had actually been a prisoner of war mm. in a concentration camp in World War II, mm. and but he was German, and he felt terribly the sense of corporate guilt mm. uh, after the news of the Holocaust came mm. out. And so there was this real sense, I mean, just in the German cultural moment of this mm. collective hopelessness. And mm. so he, he revives this idea of a theology of hope. And, and the context is, at that point, referring to, say, heaven or eternal life, was really a kind of embarrassing conversation stopper in mm -hmm. academic circles. And so he's the one who really puts it back on a map, on the map, takes it seriously, uh, views it in a biblical way, says that the kind of enlightenment myth of progress and the naive sort of optimism and hopes that went with that mm. are not an option for Christians. So he does a powerful service in this way, but um, he also ties it, in, in my opinion at least, a little bit too narrowly to a kind of social praxis, as he calls mm -hmm. it. He's got this kind of revolutionary fervor, initially of a kind of Marxist sort, but he eventually becomes more of a Christian Democrat. But there's this very, very much a sense that not only are we trying to reform and change the world, which everybody would agree is a good thing, but that is the very act of hope, is that of social justice and reform. And although I see that as very important, in fact, I wrote two chapters on that in the, my book on hope, I think it's too limited because there are a lot of people who aren't pleased to engage very much on that. A lot of people who can't, you know, mount the barricades of social revolution because maybe they're a shut-in or they're handicapped or they're just not in a position of power at all. And so I think hope has to have a more spiritual and ascetic dimension as well. Um, that, that's not... But it's not merely individual, is it? It, it, it is actually um, an act of the will that is as everything in the body of Christ, also corporate. Exactly, right. yeah. And in fact, there's a sense, in Augustine's phrase of the totus Christus, the mm. whole Christ, that, that the true hoper is in effect the whole church hoping mm. together mm. and hoping for each other, but also for creation which groans with longing for redemption, yeah. There's just one other question I want to ask David before we open up, because I'd like to have more discussion today. As a priest, I necessarily deal with a number of people who suffer severe clinical depression and it's also something that runs in my own family and I think that um, nothing is worse for someone who is suffering in that way to be told to buck up um, and to realign their will um, to the future which might be a kind of crass version of this teaching all right um, um, this is a very, I think, significant pastoral problem associated with the teaching on hope. Um, you said you didn't want to offer advice on this, but I'm sure you have something to say about this, David. Uh, um, <laughs> and well, if not, I do, but you go no, first. No, no, of course. I'll, I'll just <laughs> briefly say something, and then Sarah can follow up. 
But um, the image of Gethsemane was often reflected on as one of the great moments of hope because there you have Christ in total desolation. You know, it speaks of the effusion of blood uh, coming out of him. In Luke, yeah. Yeah, so there's this kind of total despondency and the angel comes and strengthens him and it sometimes is translated as comforted mm. uh, but the Greek word is more like strengthens mm. um, so there, there is this sense that uh, hope in what you know spiritual writers speak of as the desert you know that kind of slough of despond as, mm-hmm. as Bunyan refers to it as hope there is, is at its strongest actually if you see what I mean when it's deprived of emotional comfort mm-hmm. it's then that hope really mm-hmm. um, has to kick in mm-hmm. and so there's a whole tradition of people like St. John of the Cross who have a literature on what they call the dark night of the soul where in effect all that's left to you is this, this kind of hope in a spiritual dark place and longing for and what's amazing is that far from being a kind of um, proof of inferior spiritual status. Many saints were noted for being in this in long mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. St. John of the Cross himself. Therese of Lisieux has a and, whole chapter called and it. And Mother Teresa Mother was Teresa. in it for the whole of the latter part yeah, of her life. Yeah, yeah. But, but Unbelievably. The, 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 the idea is that there's this sense that even if you feel no hope, you can still go on hoping and having a kind of alternative to despair through trusting God is mm-hmm. itself a kind of consolation. Mm-hmm. But I also think because we noted the uh, corporate nature of hope in the body of Christ, that for someone suffering too deeply to be able to activate the will towards hope, it's our job in surrounding them with love and prayer to do the hoping for them, as it were, until such time as they come out of their own Gethsemane. So this this teaching is not about um, a kind of buck you up is it? Exactly, Um, yeah. but it's about um, a training of the will in patience, endurance, and the activation of desire for God, um, which goes with us through our life and indeed, indeed yeah. beyond it. Exactly. Um, should we take, take some questions now? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Sure. I have a question, um, sort of related to that, and um, the uh, Romans uh, five progression mm. from suffering. Uh, to hope. Um, I liked what you said that, um, uh, the phrase that uh, that suffering is an occasion, I mm, think, for, yes. for hope. And then I take that to mean um, in juxtaposition with a maybe um, uh, unhelpful universal suffering as a virtuistic um, mm-hmm. experience, which can be you know, valorizing or heroicizing of people um, who are suffering, which can actually be disempowering to them. Mm. Um, how do you distinguish between uh, suffering as an occasion for um, hope and growth versus that unhelpful valorization mm. of suffering? Yeah, I think you kind of just did very aptly. <laughs> but the, the only thing I'll add is, that, yeah, that word occasion is very good because, of course, yeah. suffering can lead to demoralization, mm. burnout, a hardening of heart. Mm. Um, so it, it shouldn't be valorized in and of itself. Otherwise, why would you want to alleviate people's suffering, which clearly is something required by the gospel. So you don't want suffering to look like a good. But the idea is that despite being a bad in and of itself, good can come out of it. It can be an occasion uh, of this. Uh, and so I think uh, that image of the still small voice, you know, it's something that can cause you to, to seek that. Uh, and, and the book of Psalms, I think, is really the great prayer book of hope here. How do you respond to suffering, not with despair, but with renewed commitment to God as the source of your strength? Um, you know, that image of he shall renew your youth like the eagle. 
youthfulness or juventas, the Latin term, was always seen as the image of hope. I love that, mm -hmm. this kind of strength that, that comes. Uh, yes. I do think you put your finger on something unbelievably important, which actually it's not easy to disentangle yeah. in any one case. Mm -hmm. And a lot of feminist theology and black theology is precisely about yeah. this issue, that um, you, know, you should never use Christ's suffering as a kind of justification for unjust suffering or suffering that could be relieved by the good use of medicine, et cetera, et cetera. So any, any pastoral advice which isn't constantly aware of that, you know, what we call hermeneutics of suspicion, is off track. Um, but the fact is we all suffer in our lives to varying degrees. And it's at the heart of the Christian gospel to know how to respond to that without assuming that that necessarily is God's last word. And that's what we're talking about today, about turning into the future as a gentle act of the will in travail and endurance. And if I could just add, uh, Aquinas thinks that for each virtue there are two vices. So hope is opposed not just by despair, but by presumption. Mm, and for Aquinas, that, yeah. presumption consists in not coming to the aid of your neighbor in need. So there's no idea of just letting them, you know, uh, languish or mm. fester. The idea is that if you don't come to their aid, like in Matthew 24, then you're failing precisely in hope and tempting them to despair. Yeah, so... Rex, and then Ian, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think, in, in my own life, I mean, basically, the, the darkest moments are as important to who I am now mm. as my best times, mm. okay? Mm -hmm. And I had a grandmother that told me that children of the rich are stillborn. And I think by that, she meant by that, I don't know what she meant by that was that, again, in order to really experience life, you have to have adversity. In other words, you, you, can't, you can't really live unless you have challenge. And in fact, actually, you, you can't know good unless you can contrast it with evil. You, in other words, you have to have that contrast to know. Uh, you have to have a bad cup of coffee every once in a while and realize you've had a good one for a long time. Okay. As here, of course. Thank you, Mark. But I think the, the, the crucifixion, Christ really, first of all, as you point out, he was not exempted from despair. But he obviously had hope because he told the others they would be with him in paradise. Okay? And he also showed forgiveness to those who were perpetrating this. It was an injustice, totally wrong. But I guess my question is, is hope a choice? And I, real, I recognize that some people, because of mental conditions or physical conditions, they're not able to rationally look at something and say, you know, I, you know, I know how this is, it's hopeless, but I have to, I choose to have hope. So that's a question. I think that's a perfect word for it. Hope is a choice rather than a feeling. Mm -hmm. um, that, that sense of, of committing to God even when things look dark or bleak or you or your cause appear to be on the losing side of history or you're facing tragedy. Um, this sense that you commit to or, or choose hope nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that is a virtue of the will, the part of you that resolves, that determines as distinct from, say, moods and attitudes. Yeah. Behind Rex's question, though, is a very profound issue that we haven't really touched on, which is sort of what's the worst thing that can happen to you? All right. 
I mean, if you ask someone who is dying to have hope and the only thing they've committed themselves to is not dying, mm -hmm. that's obviously going to be a head-on collision. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you believe that the worst thing that can happen to you is to fall away from God, mm -hmm. then um, that really changes the metaphysical picture, does it not? And I think that's why it's quite difficult to discuss this with people who are not mm. Christians. Yeah, in the same fact, way. I was yeah, told yeah. once that heaven's not, heaven doesn't have a zip code, <laughs> but what it is, we don't know anything really about it, except it's closer to God. Mm. And that's our hope. Mm. Exactly. But you're right, if you're dying, and, I, and I've certainly had, I've been exposed to people, like everyone here, I'm sure, mm -hmm. and it, it's hard to really give them much consolation. Except by being with them. Yes. Yes. I think what, <laughs> what you absolutely cannot predict is how someone is going to respond to their own imminent death. It, 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 it really, including our own. Including our own, exactly. <coughs> um, yep. You get some very surprising transformations one way or the other. Uh, Ian. Yeah. Uh, David, you, st you started talking about um, social activism. And you know, I don't want to delve into politics, but uh, there's a, when you think about hope and you think of the growing number of homelessness within uh, the world, and I think there was an article today about just how that's increasing across the country. And then you also think of uh, uh, the, the, ch the challenges that are going on with climate change and, and uh, you know, dreamers and, and, and stuff like that. What should the church's role be in terms of being a prophetic voice uh, as it relates to things like that? Um, I mean, that's such a big question, but the one part I can get into is, is what is hope's place in that? Yes. As distinct from, say, justice, charity. But it's very important to see all the virtues as unified. That's the idea, is that you have a comprehensive approach. Um, but of course, hope presents a kind of problem, because if you think of the scriptural language, here we have no lasting city, but we seek one which is to come. In the letter of Hebrews, people like Abraham, Enoch, and Noah are congratulated for being strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And he says, they sought not an earthly city, but a heavenly one, shifting the idea of the promised land from this earth. So what, what happens is a lot of pagan authors in antiquity say Christianity is a force of otherworldliness and obscurantism. Right. Um, and so this is a, a live question. Does hope reorient our priorities so much to heaven that we, in effect, forget the tasks of justice here on earth? And of course, the tradition is alive to this problem. And I think the most um, unified way over the history of, uh, of Christian theology of getting at this is through the Beatitudes. Because if you think of the Beatitudes, the very language of them, you know, blessed are the poor, they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice etc. There's a sense of precisely seeking a future good arduous but possible to attain, but not just through kind of hoping that there will be a happily ever after at the end of time, but precisely through rolling up your sleeves and undertaking this literally a hungering and thirsting after justice. And if you look at the great Christian saints and reformers, people like Martin Luther King and so forth, you know, they, they do have this sense of seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're not just reposing all their hopes in an earthly utopia, and yet they're a magnificently dynamic source of social reform. Mm -hmm. It gives them a kind of vitality and resilience, even in their earthly hopes, mm -hmm. 
that they keep going uh, even after all the earthly optimists have kind of called it a day. So I, I do see uh, Christian hope specifically very much as reinforcing in the strongest possible way uh, the commitment to, to justice, to peace, and so forth. Yeah. To the other virtues. Yeah. I mean, it's very easy in our current climate, let's take the ecological issue, to, um, to give up, to feel that it's impossible that any one of us can make the slightest difference to this, um, to this uh, sort of massive change in, in our climate. Um, and yet this has only happened because each of us has individually made bad choices, which have, of course, been then further activated by political choices. Um, and I think when we listen to you know, someone like uh, Thunberg from Sweden, you know, what she's saying is, Come on, unless we actually activate the will, yeah. um, nothing can happen. And I think at the heart of her call is actually a very, um, something very akin to Christian hope in God, um, reactivating us through the Holy Spirit to do what we can do, whatever that is. Um, because the alternative is to give up. And I don't think the Christian faith ever says that you should give up. At least, yeah. if, if that's somewhere, I've missed it. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the environmental point is important because, I mean, uh, did we mention this text where Paul says, we know the whole creation is He's groaning, groaning in travail, mm -hmm. awaiting the glory. So there's this sense of uh, not just the church, but creation itself in a kind of state of hope and, and longing for deliverance. Yeah. Yes, uh, don't A couple of questions. Mm -hmm. um, Sorry, said that we can hope for others, and I remember in seminary being told that of the three theological virtues, the only one that I can really exercise for someone else is, is hope. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that, first of all? And secondly, if, if that can be said, does that make hope uh, a unique expression of the body of Christ? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, so uh, I like the way Aquinas gets at this question, which he says that if you have charity, then you love your neighbor as another self. Uh, as though you, they are your uh, alter ego or your heart or your own soul. And he says, and if you love them that way, then naturally you, ha you hope for them mm -hmm. in precisely that way. And so hope that is just for oneself is, is vicious, is impossible mm -hmm. for Aquinas. It has to be hope for uh, the whole body of Christ, in fact, all of humanity. Um, so I think that's a, a very good point. Mm. And, and also, what is the difference between hope and trust? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point because they're very closely connected. Um, Especially in the Hebrew Bible, I think. Yeah, and this gets at also the difference between hope and perseverance. Mm. Because you can persevere or endure or, or have fortitude without having any good prospects. You can just hang in there. But the idea is that hope has this anticipation of ultimate beatitude and glory at the end. But it entirely hinges upon trust. It's very much like the idea you do not see what you hope for. So mm. how do you have any confidence or expectation that it will come about precisely through that relationship mm. of trust in God's covenant promises and so forth? Mm. So hope has a sort of fast-forward dimension yeah. in it, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and trust, as it were, holds you to the belief that that is not unfounded. Would that be the distinction? Yeah, Something like yeah. that? Yeah. There's one medieval writer who says, when we hope we are like little children holding the hands of Christ. Mm -hmm. Very much that, like a, like a little child who doesn't know where to go or how things are going to be, but trusts in the grown-up. So can we say trust is, uh, in a sense, very concretely living into the gift of hope? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yes. 
Well, Father is asking my question for me. Uh, I was thinking about the difference between this, in the same day, the difference between hope and prayer, hoping for someone and praying for someone. Mm. And, and I find when I to examine myself, I, hope somehow makes me feel more anxious <coughs> oh. prayer, even though I think you know, people in your family, you hope uh, something happens yeah. for them, and good things come to them. And I was just wondering about that difference, whereas when I pray, I feel a little, a little better. Can you sort that out? <laughs> this is actually why the Greeks and Romans definitely didn't want hope as a virtue, because hope is a source of anxiety. You know, I hope it will turn out well for my loved ones, but maybe it won't, so I feel anxious and worried. And they wanted a kind of apathy or a peace of mind. Mm. Uh, but there is a kind of vulnerability mm. in, in hope. Mm. Mm. Um, it's a very so, good point. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do. Th- I, I think you just mentioned the idea of it being connected with prayer, and that's very important. Is is it's a vulnerability precisely in prayer that requires this trust that, you know, as Lady Julian says, all shall be well. Mm. Thank you. That's a really beautiful pastoral insight. Other questions? Yes. One of the fruits of faith and hope should be joy. Mm. So, and I think there's a longing um, to see expression of joy in worship uh, and from the church. Mm. But in our culture, if you go around too joyous, think, people think you're in an altered state. So, unbalanced uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we're going to Yeah. I think that's a great point because one of the things I uh, encourage in, in the book is the idea that hope has a kind of liturgical rhythm, almost like the liturgical year. There's a kind of fasting or lament mode to hope, a kind of hanging in there in trial, but there's also a kind of rejoicing jubilation, a belief that Christ is gone to prepare a place for us, that he's risen, you know, he holds the keys of life and death, uh, that history ultimately is a kind of divine comedy. So, and it's interesting that liturgically, the church sets aside particular times of the year precisely to fulfill uh, Paul's admonition to rejoice in hope. Right? Mm-hmm. So you've got uh, Gaudete Sunday, uh, where, where there's precisely this sense of he hasn't arrived yet, but there's a confidence that he will and a, a sort of anticipatory rejoicing in that. So, so there is a kind of joy that goes along with um, the, the other side, the resilient side of hope. Mm-hmm. And Refreshment Sunday is in, yeah. in Lent as well. So we have these kind of moments when we fast forward even in penitential seasons. Other questions? I, um, last week we had a, a first time uh, attender here. His name's uh, uh, Dr. Tom Trail, and he's a cardiac surgeon at Johns Hopkins. <laughs> and his wife, who's an eminent behavioral sciences person, has the disorders clinic at Johns Hopkins, said to him, What do you tell a patient when they know that there's really no hope in? You're dying. Hmm. And and he thought for a moment, I've never forgotten this, what he said to um, to any patient together. We're going to be spending a lot more time together. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but where I want to ask the question is, you mentioned Mother Teresa, because I think the culture and the society 
although we're all enmeshed in this, we don't reflect on this whole topic we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But I think Mother Teresa's situation, what, 15, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. when that came out about her, the dark side of me, mm -hmm. it, it teed this up for the culture. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. if she can't have hope, this icon of virtue and faith and love, rubbing the engines of Indians, dying in the streets, yeah. bringing them some sense of God's nearness. Uh, but I think it really created a divide. Like, mm. <clears throat> what, and what did she, what did she show? I mean, there are, there are, there are other examples through theology and history of people darkening the soul, but this one brought it into the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm. I saw there were a lot of articles written on it. Mm. I was not distressed by it, because for me it was like, this is a photographic negative of the depth of her desire and profound longing for God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what could you, did you, how did you see that? I, I think that's a great point, because a lot of people um, thought for the first time even a saint could go through this mm -hmm. terrible despondency and, and something near to despair. Um, but the, the, I think what it shows is very much like in the story of Elijah, which Sarah mentioned, you know, Elijah lays down to die and he feels, you know, terribly uh, like, like giving up and surely no form of cheerfulness. And, and he's told to keep going, you know, 40 days and 40 nights where he has this theophany. And I think people like Mother Teresa and Teresa Blizio, John of the Cross, uh, lo lots of figures actually, have, have gone through this kind of experience. St. John calls it this dark night, or the older writers used to compare it to a desert. Um, and their hope consists not in feeling any sort of cheerfulness, but in the precisely the determination or decision to carry on with the belief and in the trust that God would vindicate their cause and make them come to their true homeland in the end, yeah. I agree this is hugely difficult because unlike John of the Cross who experienced union um, and therefore the relief from the two nights that he describes from the letters to the spiritual director from Mother Teresa it's not clear that she ever had that breakthrough and that seems to be a very distinctive 20th century feature of dark nightness so you get it in Simone Weil for instance it's not relieved there um, and I don't think we should, however, conclude that Mother Teresa lost hope. I think this is a very important distinction because in the conditions of dark night, hope becomes an absolutely arid, in some ways unfulfilling, emotionally unresponsive direction of the will to God. So it's sort of, it's a hanging on in belief and faith, but with no feedback loop that's yeah. that's immediately positive and she did not stop serving exactly exactly yeah and so from the perspective of someone like john of the cross it would be said god was purifying her will in the most intense form imaginable testing it it's like a sort of elongated gethsemane if you like um but it didn't stop her doing what she was doing and that's the paradox i think that Christianity holds before us. We just don't know in any given life how long that holding on has to continue. That's what's so hard. Um, but to go back to your question, this doesn't mean a valorization of suffering. Right. Yeah. 
that's what's so tricky to discern. You could look at it from uh, John Paul II and mm. his public dying. Yes. And, and the way he suffered, yet at the same time, I, I believe he was saying, but I hope. Yes. Yes. I hope for, for, uh, for, for eternal mm -hmm. life. Any other questions? Coming to the end of our time. Perhaps I will just ask David if he would like to, um, I'd like to thank him for being here because he has a lot on his plate and has to rush off immediately to his own mass. But David, could you just give us um, a closing sort of take-home punchline from your book, which I hope everyone will go and buy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's, uh, unfortunately, it's a university press, so it's probably a little too pricey, but, but it, you can get a good preview on Google Books. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it'll be paperback in due course. The, the takeaway I would really focus on is, mm. is one that we said hope is a virtue of the will, it's mm. not an emotion or an attitude, and two, the ultimate question really about hope, because a lot of people want to almost bottle it up or commodify it, you know, as though you could deliver it by Amazon. What will give us hope? Where will we find optimism in dark times? And I think the Christian solution is to shift gears, in a sense, from seeking hope for its own sake to focusing precisely on God. That's why it's spoken of as a theological virtue. God is the source of one's hope and, and really the image of the resurrection mm. after Gethsemane mm. as the great image of that. And that's, that's what's really, I think, sustained... Uh, countless generations of Christians mm. with, with hope is the sense that it's precisely through having God specifically as our source of hope rather than just um, seeking other avenues of it. And that gives us the, the energy, if you like, for and the courage um, and the prophetic um, capacity to do what has to be done, to face what has to be done. Yeah. David, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you.